Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Healthy Dose of Dialogue podcast. I'm your host, Don Antonucci, Senior Vice President of Growth at Blue Shield of California. I'm excited to welcome Suzanne Delbanco to the podcast. Suzanne is the Executive Director of Catalyst for Payment Reform, an independent nonprofit corporation working to catalyze employers, public purchasers, and others to implement strategies that produce high value healthcare and improve the functioning of the healthcare marketplace. Thanks for joining me, Suzanne. My pleasure, Don, thank you. Well, it is so good to have you here. And what I am excited about for our listeners is uh, for them to come away with, uh, you know, a really greater sense of value-based care in particular. Uh, I know that's something that you're passionate about and have been focused on through much of your career. So we'll definitely be looking forward to getting into questions around that. Um, but to start out, the last, uh, the last time that I was able to kind of see you in action, you were actually hosting a panel discussion and uh, you had a virtual summit uh, that was called Adapting in the Age of COVID-19, the Healthcare Delivery System Responds. And uh, we had uh, Blue Shield CEO was part of that as one of the panelists and, and, and others as well. Um, but I was curious, uh, as you think about that panel that you hosted, was there anything that uh, surprised you uh, from that panel? I think it just really settled into my mind that the healthcare system is making changes right now to adapt to the pandemic, not just to treating and preparing for COVID patients, but also because there was such a precipitous drop in, uh, you know, elective visits or patients' willingness to come in person for care. Um, you know, there, there have just been some massively fundamental changes to how the healthcare system is working. And, um, you know, it was hard to tell at the beginning, would these be temporary or permanent? And I think the impression I walked away with uh, from that discussion was that these are going to be some long-lasting changes. So that, that was my big aha. And when you think about, like, telehealth, I'm assuming, I know that was part of the conversation in virtual care. What's your perspective from where you sit? And I know these are unprecedented times, but yeah, massive acceleration, you know, you hear here to stay, um, but do you think there'll be some pullback there or morphing of it? Uh, how, how do you see that? Tell me more about how you see something like telehealth or virtual care. Yeah, I mean, this, it's a fascinating space that I've been paying attention to for quite a while. Um, I was interested in it initially of course, you know, employers focus on it from the perspective of expanding access to primary care and potentially reducing, uh, you know, the use of the emergency room or urgent care and, uh, you know, just generally increasing satisfaction of plan members by having more options for how to gain access to care. But I also liked its potential as, you know, a new entrant in the healthcare system that could spur innovation and sort of modernization in other ways um, and competition, frankly, you know, in, in markets where there's a dominant health system and not much competition, could telehealth be used in a way that could, you know, sort of triage use of that overpriced healthcare system as, at the same time as meeting the needs of patients. So I've been interested in it for a long time. Um, 
the common theme among our members was we think it's really great, we're providing it, we're making sure that there's access to it, but almost nobody uses it. So I think the big change now is that a lot more people have had a, uh, an experience with it or more than one, and people realize that in, you know, in certain ways it can be extremely uh, convenient the, you know, not just because you don't, uh, you know, need to leave home, but, um, you know, you can get, you know, a lot of the care that you would get in person substituted, sometimes at a lower cost, um, uh, you know, without the travel time, you know, just the convenience factors are kind of overwhelming. Um, but I think there are some things that are going to have to be sort of shaken out and figured out. Um, where is it appropriate, where is it not? You know, where can telehealth not replace a physical exam or in-person visit? Um, and what's the right amount to pay for it and how should it be paid for? Um, because everyone quickly ran into parity wanting to pay the same as an in-person visit to help physician practices that were suffering big losses in revenue. Uh, but should we be paying the same if the visit can't possibly be equivalent? So those are some of the things that I'm thinking about. You've been focused on, you know, like I said, this area for a long time. So when you think about the quadruple aim, you know, that you hear about in the healthcare industry, which is cost, quality, um, experience, and then also provider, right, experience. When you think about through that lens, virtual care, te telehealth, um, do you think it, it it hits on all of those in a real positive way across the board, or do you think it's still questionable? Like you mentioned cost. I think it's, it, we're not sure yet, right, on that, but how do you think about that? Yeah, I think it absolutely has the potential to hit on all of those elements. Um, whether it does is all in the details, you know, how it's implemented. So I think from a quality perspective, um, the evidence has been for certain types of care that the quality can be quite high. Uh, and um, you know, there have been a fair number of studies now, and actually there's a great report that Covered California commissioned that looked at all of the recent studies and, you know, where do they come out. Um, so that's a great resource. I think on the cost side, it all depends on what the price is that we pay for it, and is it a substitute or is it additional? Um, you know, is it so easy to get telehealth that people start having more medical care visits um, than they did before, some of them unnecessary? Um, or are they having visits that they should have been having that they didn't, which leads to prevention or you know, higher cost down the road? Um, and in terms of uh, you know access, you know we already kind of talked about that piece. So I think um, it has great potential, but you know again, it's in the details. When, when you think about your membership has some very large employers, uh, some California-based, and then you've also got some some uh, national employers and I think consulting houses as well, part of your, your membership. When you look at just value-based care overall, so that whole notion of that we've been talking about for some time, moving away from fee-for-service to value-based care, and there's been some progress, I would say, but how do you view the either acceleration or opportunity momentum ahead related to that? Well, I think we're at a natural pause. I think the pandemic provided that. Um, and also maybe because 
Catalyst for Payment Reform is at its 10th anniversary, so it's a natural pause for us. And when we got started, you know, we did an unofficial query of some of the big national uh, health insurance carriers and asked them what percent of payment at that time was tied to performance in some way. That's how we phrased it. You know, that's what we meant by payment reform. And the answer we got back in 2010 was between 1% and 3%. You know, now we're at probably around 60%. But it's hardly been a move away from fee-for-service because it's about 95% of these alternative payment models are, are on a fee-for-service chassis. So we're still paying providers on a daily basis the same old way, but there's some budgets that they're trying to adhere to or quality measures they're trying to meet um, or standards they're trying to meet or, um, uh, you know, they're taking some risk for overspending that they, they hadn't in the past. Uh, but the fee-for-service basis is still there. So we've got perverse incentives fighting now with, with the right incentives, and, you know, we haven't quite seen the impact that we want to see yet. We haven't seen healthcare become magically more affordable. We haven't seen quality across the board skyrocket as we might like with all these incentives in place. Um, and, uh, you know, the actual cost of providing care, maybe that's come down in some ways due to greater efficiencies or reduction of duplication, but, uh, you know, we've made some incremental progress, but not quite enough. So at this natural pause, it's, you know, uh, uh, I think a good moment to take a look at what has worked, what hasn't worked, what are the, you know, contextual factors that make a difference, and sort of what are the best features that we've seen that we can maybe combine in new ways going forward. I think that's where we are. It's a, it's a moment to reflect and figure out how we want to shape things going forward so they lead to that the purpose at the end of the day, which is higher quality and more affordable care. I'm really curious to ask you the, this question around, so yeah, 10-year anniversary, congratulations. That is awesome, Cattles for Payment Reform. Um, but when you think about that whole you know notion of moving away from fee-for-service, what do you think is going to take to actually truly do that in a much bigger way? I mean, are we going to be sitting here 10 years from now? Do you even think we have that time left to make that shift? Or do you think it's, it's more imminent where we're going to be able to actually, you know, get to that point? What's your thoughts on that? I think, you know, physician groups experiencing a precipitous drop in revenue who are dependent on fee-for-service have had their eyes open to the fact that maybe it's not an ideal business model and that maybe they'd be better off either with prepayment, you know, per patient or perhaps some kind of hybrid between, you know, prepayment and fee-for-service that lets them ride through these, you know, tumultuous times a little bit better and also adapt in ways that they don't have to figure out a business model for. Um, so if we really want physician practices to adapt to the modern era of multiple modes of you know care delivery, um, you know we need to think about payment models that can support that and support them. And I don't think 100% fee-for-service basis is is that model. So I think we'll make progress because there's been enough pain, you know, that that some physician practices are open to it now. Um, but I don't know where we're going to be in 10 years. I would be shocked if we didn't have any more fee-for-service. Uh, but I think, you know, we will continue to make some headway, you know, slowly but surely, incrementally moving toward, you know, models that seem to produce better better value. You know, I, I've uh, 
talked in the past about and thought a lot about employers and big public purchasers that really have a lot of, I think, power that I just, and I think they've utilized some of that to implement things that actually move the needle towards value-based care in a much bigger way. But the flip side is, um, you know, sometimes employers don't, that are large employers kind of uh, control their destiny in a way that would actually move that needle um, for for whatever reason. Where, what's your view on that? I mean, you're, you've engaged with and you talk to, you know, large public purchasers and employers, uh, you know, are, do you think that's coming to a tipping point or is it just still maybe some of them that are really willing to kind of go there and want to be, for the right reasons? What? How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, things have changed. In the 20 years I've worked with employers and other big healthcare purchasers, there are far more who are extremely innovative, uh, progressive, willing to try things at the bleeding edge in order to try to get better value. I think, you know, again, desperation breeds, uh, you know, inventiveness. Um, but I think the vast majority of employers and other, of other purchasers out there don't have the sophistication or bandwidth uh, to do this on their own. And, you know, at, at Catalyst for Payment Reform, we have 30 plus members. They are among the most sophisticated. So I know that my, you know, my sample is not representative. Um, and, and it is an amazing group that we have. They're all doing multiple innovative things. Um, but I think for the most part, you know, the healthcare system is so unbelievably complicated uh, that it's a lot to expect a one or two person or maybe even half person, you know, benefits team or HR person in a company to understand it well enough to navigate it smartly, um, which is why, you know, they often rely on, on organizations like Blue Shield of California to mm -hmm. solutions for them that can solve their problems. It's why we have, you know, so, such robust business for consultants and advisors. I mean, it's just, it's a mess. So as long as we're, you know, having an employer uh, based healthcare system, um, I think we're going to have some at the bleeding edge who who lead the way, who identify innovations that can be beneficial. Some of those will become mainstream, which will have you know a good impact on the market. Um, but the customer is just not organized; it doesn't have a, a loud voice, um, and can't compete with the sort of power and uh, you know, dominance that the that the healthcare delivery system has. Do you think from for the healthcare delivery system, whether it's payers or providers, that I mean, do you, I think I heard you make a comment around you know, so for example, accountable care organizations, and when you've seen one ACO, you've seen one ACO, and I think you your comment was more along the lines of if you're a purchaser uh, and you've got you know a couple health plans or providers that are involved there, they're all measuring things you know, different ways and, and highlighting it in different ways, which I'm sure can be confusing and complex. So my question is really, whether it's that or really anything, how much of this do you think is just, um, you know, the industry getting out of its way and coming together on either key measures or programs or services? How, how do you think about that? You know, uniformity would go a long way. Um, we have this challenge in every aspect of the healthcare system, that everybody thinks they're exceptional, or their culture is different, their market's different, their patients are different, and so it leads to this, uh, you know, cacophony that we all deal with. Um, even employers, if you get them around a table, 
getting them to agree to a standard set of benefits, for example, or a standard, you know, plan offering would, could be very, very challenging. And, and we've actually been doing some research on past and current efforts to do that um, and finding that a lot of them fail because people can't agree. Um, so I think um, it's, it's going to be, it, it's hard to know how this is all going to evolve. Um, but I think uh, we need to find ways to agree on a more parsimonious and valuable set of quality measures. Um, we need to find ways to agree on payment models across sectors, you know, Medicaid, commercial, Medicare, so we can send stronger signals to providers about what we're looking for from them. Um, you know, we need to agree on standard ways to evaluate these kinds of programs so we can compare apples to apples. That's something that Catalyst for Payment Reform has worked on a lot is creating standard templates. I mean, if you think of the nutrition label, you know, on a soup can, you know what cells are there, what data have to be there. Um, and to the degree we can have standard reports that come from providers or from, you know, organizations like Blue Shield of California that start to become familiar and, and are comparable across competitors, you know, I think we could have a much more understandable marketplace to those who are using and, and paying for care. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, again, looking at your background, I, I've been in you know health insurance and health care for about 25 years. I started out uh, research analytics, uh, NCQA, HEDIS, um, you know, so for those listeners on the phone, NCQA National Quali Committee for Quality Insurance and HEDIS, I think it's Health, Inf health Employer Data Information Set, or maybe it's changed or morphed. Um, but that was an attempt to start to bring together quality measures, results scores, and, and start to compare more apples to apples. And I was in New York City at the time working at uh, a plan called Health, Hip Health Plan of New York at the time in New York City. And so, uh, you know, years ago, uh, this is back in the mid 90s. So I look at that and I go, here we are today um, in 2020 <laughs> talking about some of this. Your perspective on what really needs to happen to bring that together, um, you know, to really get us to a place where we're looking at a common set of measures together, like the nutrition label. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, just to use the case example, we have made some serious progress with that in the last few years in the space of ACOs. Just let's use that as a as a um, instance. So we created a standard plan ACO report that has a cost, utilization, and quality uh, section. And we partnered with the Integrated Healthcare Association, um, who was also working on a standard set of measures for ACO performance, and said, we're not going to create a new one, because if we're trying to create standardization, we should, we should glom on to the same set. So we essentially um, created a, a subset from that list of 10 measures that we thought were sort of the most indicative of how well an ACO uh, performs and uh, in, on the, in the quality arena, and then we added some cost and utilization uh, metrics to it with you know, lots of expert input. We gave health plans an opportunity to review them. And over the last, uh, we're at, in our third year now of having major health insurance carriers from across the country report to us on how their ACO programs are performing using that standard template. And the amount of information we get, how meaningful it is, how comparable it is, is like night and day compared to four years ago. Four years ago, every health plan reported three measures. 
They were not the same three measures. There just seemed to be something magic about the number three. And of course, the performance on them was all very positive. <laughs> left our, it left our membership feeling duped because why is it that they all choose three? None of them are the same and they're always positive. There's clearly a bigger story here that we're not hearing. So I'm just starting off with a positive note to say that I think it can be done. Um, but we're a little organization and we don't have the PR or marketing muscle to make sure that every employer and, you know, uh, benefit consultant out there knows to use our template, right? We're also at a good pause moment because of COVID where some of the reporting requirements and quality metrics have been paused or slowed down or delayed, you know, to say, do we need all the measures we've come up with? I mean, 20 years ago, we didn't have any standard measures. Now we have too many. And the question is, are they the most meaningful ones that truly show differentiation, offer opportunities for improvement, help consumers and purchasers, uh, you know, uh, identify which providers they want to go to or, or do business with. Um, I, I think we do need to peel back a little bit the number of metrics that we're using. Um, but standardization is going to be so critical, and I think uh, it's, it's a slog to get there, but I'm hoping that we can. Related to this topic, when you think about uh things like bundled payments and some of the uh, proof points that have come out from that for both quality and maybe not getting um, a surgery or something, uh, you know, sort of that waste in healthcare or that actually can cause harm um, and also doing things with guarantees or with uh, in, in terms of guaranteeing the quality and the outcome. Um, when you look at uh, things like bundled payments and, and where employers are with that today, Knowing that you're 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 working with some of the leading uh, purchases around this, what are the opportunities for that to scale to many more employers leveraging that from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, honestly, the most important thing would be if organizations like Blue Shield of California and the other big health insurance companies could bring it to scale, because most employers are not going to carve out services and work with an independent vendor or figure out on their own how to pay bundled payments. Um, so we have measured the amount of bundled payment that exists over the last eight years, and it has never broken, you know, uh, 3%. It's never risen above that. Um, so we've seen virtually no growth in bundled payment, um, over the whole decade of the payment reform movement. Um, it's difficult for lots of reasons to implement, um, but it also holds a lot of promise, as you mentioned. So we actually just had a year-long um, uh, working group of a, a small group of employers who are really committed to wanting to see more bundled payments, um, talk about what it is they want from bundled payments, um, how they want to bring it to their population, and we kind of scanned the marketplace to see how it could be possible to advance bundled payment beyond where it is now. And there is an amazing cadre of uh, independent vendors that are, you know, really focused around it, whether they are essentially helping employers do semi-direct contracting with providers where they identify the providers, they've already negotiated the bundle, and, and essentially the employer carves it out of their, you know, standard health plan uh, contract and goes through that vendor. Um, there are also vendors out there that work primarily with providers to get them ready to accept bundled payments or has, you know, they've helped them with Medicare um, and participate in those programs and now want to help them translate that into the commercial market. Um, but I think until big health insurance companies figure out how to automate bundled payments 
and not have to do it manually in a back room, it's, it's just not going to scale. It's not going to scale through these independent vendors, and it's not going to scale, you know, until we have some automation. And do you feel, I, I would agree with you, do you feel like employers are asking for it or not quite yet because there hasn't been enough of it implemented to point to and go, yeah, that works and it's easy to kind of, you know, talk to my health plan or carrier and fold that in. I mean, how do you see that? Is it, is there a market demand there for it? Or it's, it's really got to, to your point, be more served up because healthcare is complicated and this is one of, you know, a hundred things on their plate. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the average employer across the country probably doesn't know what bundled payment is. So among CPR members, we've been advocating for and, and pushing for it for nine years. You know, really since our first year of the health plan user groups, we've been measuring it, asking for, you know, when there's going to be more of it, asking for, you know, presentations on pilots that are taking place, um, doing literature reviews from all the different sectors to show what's worked, what's not. You know, we, we kind of looked at it every every side that we, you know, every direction we could and, and um, are, uh, like I said, you know, kind of got to a place where we felt like it just wasn't budging enough. We had to look elsewhere. And so that's why we've done this work looking at these other other suppliers. Um, so there's a lot of demand for it among our membership. Um, I think they really believe that it can create better care continuity and coordination among the providers delivering an episode of care. I think they think it can lead to um, a better patient experience. Um, it doesn't automatically uh, reduce the volume incentive because providers could just try to do more bundles. Um, even though within the bundle they're going to want to conserve resources because there's a budget that they're working with or a set, you know, prepayment. Um, so, you know, it's not it's not without its potential flaws, but if it's done carefully, you know, our members are very eager to see more of it. The other thing I'm hearing quite a bit of, and I'm excited about the direction, is around um, is just primary care payment models. So I was curious to just, you know, get your perspective on as it relates to primary care and the focus there. I know that's something that uh, that uh, we're focused on and making sure that we get the right value-based arrangements in place there. What are you seeing with that? What are you hearing about primary care payment models? Yeah, I mean, that's an area where I think we're going to see a lot of continued experimentation, which is really exciting. Um, one of the reasons Catalyst for Payment Reform came into being was feeling like there was this horrible imbalance between how much we pay to primary care versus specialty care. And uh, with the right payment models, you know, we can try to correct for some of that and also acknowledge the importance of primary care and some of the services that we all want to have available through our primary care provider, including things like virtual care and, you know, um, the ability to have email correspondence with your, you know, with your doctor and things like that. Um, so uh, we think that there's a lot of potential in this space. And I think the way it really started out, you know, there was a big movement around patient-centered medical homes. And I think they've kind of morphed into physician-led ACOs. I mean, that whole, you know, it would be an interesting sort of history to try to detail. But the idea is that there's a population that primary care practices are responsible for, and that there's some upfront payment to acknowledge that there are certain types of services or supports that patients need that aren't in the typical billing codes. And I think we've made some progress there. Um, but the relative amounts we still, you know, we pay for primary care are still, I think, this, this, 
in a distorted way was too low compared to a lot of the specialty services. Um, and I think going forward, you know, there is a lot of interest in this model I mentioned earlier of some kind of hybrid of, uh, you know, a prepayment or per capita payment um, for a lot of the sort of infrastructure and, and uh, glue that, you know, pulls together what a primary care experience could be like for a patient with some fee-for-service payment where it makes sense to create incentives for providers to deliver certain services or where it's just not practical to be able to plan ahead to what the cost might be in a, in a, in a capitated model. So um, I think we're going to see a lot of experimentation with that kind of hybrid model going forward. Yeah, so what you're really suggesting is on, you know, whether it's bundle payments or, or primary care is we've got to be flexible um, as an industry and learn and uh, and then start to, you know, where it makes sense, uh, you know, scale that and apply it uh, for, for the good. That makes sense. Um, mental health, behavioral health is also a big topic that uh, has come up, not just because of the pandemic. Uh, I was just reading a stat around you know, 83% of Americans are concerned, you know, where things are going nationally. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot going on with people's work lives and homeschooling and, and all of that. Um, and then before that though, uh, the different surveys around employers in terms of uh, mental health and behavioral health benefits and services has been something that's been on the rise. What are you hearing from your members around that category? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree before the pandemic, our members were already seeing an increasing need, quite you know, steep, uh, for both uh, mental health and uh, substance use disorder care. Uh, so, you know, the pandemic has just exacerbated that that need and also created challenges, but also opportunities for, you know, how to deliver that care in areas where we have a severe shortage and we need to be very creative. So, um, I mean, our members are, are very concerned and focused on these issues. Um, I think that, uh, you know, when it comes to both mental health and substance use disorders, there hasn't been that much experimentation with new payment models. But I think, you know, in contrast to the discussion we were having about primary care, in areas where you have sort of, um, you know, less than adequate access. Sometimes fee-for-service can help because you want there to be a volume incentive, if you will. Um, on the other hand, you know, there's obviously a big movement to try to integrate um, the behavioral health needs of patients with primary care or the rest of their care. And, you know, the paying in silos, you know, perpetuate some of those silos. So, um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in this space. I think this is an area where the advent of new technologies, people's comfort with virtual care, uh, you know, the sort of growing acceptance and perhaps reduced stigma of, of these issues, um, as well as, you know, the much wider understanding and availability of things like meditation and, you know, apps that help that and apps that help with cognitive behavioral therapy, et cetera. You know, it, it's just, it's a new era um, and, uh, you know, some of these um, quote unquote modern approaches won't work for every patient, but for a lot of them they will. And I think for younger people, they'll expect it to be delivered in this way. So I think we're gonna be seeing a lot of changes, um, but I, I think the demand is, is something that's gonna be a continued challenge to meet. And, you know, we talked a little bit about 
accountable care organizations, ACOs, and I was curious to you to find out from a purchaser or an employer perspective, it does seem like the trend towards at least considering, you know, high performance networks. I like that, you know, notion better than when people talk about narrow networks. But if we talk about high performance networks, are you uh, hearing or sensing that there's a more appetite to start to look to, to offer those? Definitely. I mean, at least again, among our membership, right? So it, it may not be the most representative membership, but it's, uh, you know, uh, a group of purchasers who came to CPR because they want to get better value for their healthcare dollar. And, you know, we've talked a lot about payment reform, um, delivery reform. We haven't talked as much about price. And, you know, even before the pandemic, you know, there's been so much consolidation among healthcare providers, and the evidence is quite uh, substantial that consolidation leads to higher prices. So um, as we are trying to, you know, figure out ways to get better value, we have to address those prices. And um, I think, you know, going forward, one of the most obvious ways to do that is to cut out the highest price, price providers. So whether it's a, quote, narrow network, as you said, or a narrow, narrower network, um, you know, the idea of high performance is to find both high quality and reasonably priced, right, or, or reasonable total cost of care, even a better measure. So um, I think in certain markets, they are very difficult to come by because if there's one dominant health system, you know, who can you carve out and will they let you? Um, in markets where there is some competition or adequate competition, they are a truly viable option. And among our members, there's an extreme amount of interest. And some of them, you know, among the most sophisticated, um, are doing direct contracts with health systems as ACOs. And they, you know, went through a competitive process to identify which health system would become their partner. Um, and it provides an opportunity not just for negotiating around uh, price. That's, in fact, probably somewhere down on the list. It's more about quality standards, access standards, patient experience overall, um, and ultimately the cost savings they hope will come from, you know, the, the people's care needs being met in a, in a more efficient and wholesome way. There may be some price negotiation that happens too, but it's really more focused on the total cost of care than just, you know, the, the unit price of different services. I, I wanted to kind of shift a bit and just ask what's been the personal impact for you um, with COVID-19? I mean, has there been a silver lining for you? You've kind of mentioned, hey, this has been also a time to, to pause in some regards. Uh, you know, what's been the personal impact for you? So that's a great question. And I'll try to answer it, I think, on two levels. Um, one, as the head of a nonprofit in an uncertain economic time, and the other as you know, a healthcare strategist, right, and someone who thinks a lot about the future. So I guess I'll start with the first to say that it's always scary for, you know, the head of a 501c3 nonprofit organization, even though we're small, we're only 10 people, you know, to figure out what a seismic, you know, event like this is going to do to us. Um, so it, you know, it really encouraged my whole team to think very creatively about how could we adapt you know, some of our typical sources of, uh, of financial support, you know, aren't there for us. Um, on a strategic basis, um, I think, you know, as you said, I've already mentioned, I think, some of the big things, which is that it's sort of a natural pause. So what do we want the future to look like? 
but honestly, we were kind of already there. I mean, maybe again, it's just, you know, thinking about 10 years, what does this mean that we've been around this long? But I think we were already on a path to wanting to think about prices more, even though they're not quote payment reform. Um, and now, honestly, the, the pandemic has made that even more important because we are seeing, we are going to already have and will see more consolidation as a result of the pandemic because some practices just you know, couldn't stay afloat. So what do we do about prices? Um, how do we shift payment models to be more aggressive and to pose some downside risk to providers? Because we think we have to turn up the volume in order to get better results than we've seen so far. Um, and how do we continue to chip away at the opaqueness of the healthcare marketplace and create greater transparency? Not just the sort of traditional transparency we've all talked about around patients rights to see quality and cost information, but even for all the different players, I, I think to create the kind of um, alignment that we were talking about a few minutes ago around quality measures and, uh, you know, reporting and all that, we need the data to flow more freely. And instead, we see lots of companies, including some health insurance companies, saying, hey, this might be our biggest asset. We're going to start holding it tighter. And it's just at odds with trying to, you know, think in a sort of population sense about how can we improve things. Um, so those were things already on our mind, and I don't think they change. Um, but I, I do think that the pandemic creates some, you know, more sort of uh, extreme thinking on people's parts and maybe willingness to leap over the, some incrementalism to get to somewhere else faster. But in other cases, you know, with some providers, we've seen retrenchment, you know, I, I don't want to be held to these quality standards anymore. I, I don't want to be taking on downside risk when things are so volatile. And while that could be temporary, it could also be a bridge to some kind of you know permanent retrenchment. As you know, you know Blue Shield, our North Star is really healthcare that's worthy of our family and friends, is sustainably affordable. And you know, you've heard from our CEO Paul Markovich, and it's through our company. We do view this as a time to get there and accelerate the transformation that's needed because we don't have healthcare today that's worthy of our family and friends and sustainably affordable and we need to get there. And so I, I think, you know, one thing that's consistent as I, you know, kind of do these interviews with leaders like yourself is that there's this window of opportunity here to really get this to uh, to a much better place. Um, you know, to, to close out, uh, is there anything else that you would uh, like to share with our listeners? No, I mean, I, I really appreciate the mission of Blue Shield of California, and no one paid me to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, you know, I think we're on the same journey. Um, and, uh, you know, people like to point the fingers at health insurance companies um, in this country, and I think it's way more complicated than that. Um, you know, I just wish at the end of the day that everyone who worked in the healthcare industry would remember that it's ultimately about the patient. It's about, you know, when people need care, that's when we're supposed to show up and do well by them and, or, you know, to keep them from needing care in the first place. And, you know, I just feel like far too many people are making big bucks and, um, you know, seeking power and prestige rather than really focusing on the patient. And, you know, if we could flip that on its, on its uh, side, um, I think, uh, you know, we would be meeting the needs of people a lot better. Thank you, Suzanne. 
Um, thank you for taking the time to listen. Uh, I hope you walked away with a better understanding of how value-based strategies can contribute to higher quality, better health outcomes, and a low cost. And as Suzanne just said, it's about the patient and the focus on the patient. Uh, for more information on Catalyst for Payment Reform, check out their website at www.catalyze.org. And join us next time as we continue to bring you a healthy dose of insights and perspectives based on conversations with leaders who are transforming healthcare. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple iTunes or Spotify, or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Dose of Dialogue. Thank you.